Distilled to their essence, independent labels are labors of love, reflecting the taste of just one person and usually propelled by the efforts of that person alone. Today, we shine a spotlight on Jealous Butcher Records, the labor of love of Rob Jones for the last 27 years. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk to Rob Jones, the founder and owner of Jealous Butcher Records for the last 27 years. It's all coming up on The Future of What? Support for the future of what comes from SoundExchange. Jealous Butcher is offering our listeners a special deal, 25% off anything in their catalog with promo code FOW18. Go to jealousbutcher.com today. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to Rob Jones of Jealous Butcher. Rob, welcome to the future of what? Thanks. Yay. I'm excited to be here. So today we're doing a spotlight on your record label. I have a record label? Apparently. Oh, cool. Yeah. What's it called? It's called Jealous Butcher. Oh, nice. I like that. You should know that. I should. I'm going to write that down. Yeah. So how long ago was it that you started this little adventure? I started this adventure the year that punk broke. In 1991, I started this. Wow. Yeah. So you are exactly the same age as Kill Rockstars. Exactly. That's so weird. Yeah, that is actually kind of weird to think about. So what inspired you to start your label? Well, I like music. I had a bunch of friends in bands and we would go around town in Eugene and record them. And we would make tape, like on a four track, and we would make tapes and pass them around. And at one point we were like, hey, we should make a compilation. It's like, oh, well, we should have a record label then, you know. Wow. So I looked at labels like K and Kill Rockstars, honestly. So I must have known about you guys right after you started. Well, Slim did put out that compilation in like August of 1991. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that would be, that'd be about, yeah, wow. And Sub Pop and just all the music that was going on in the Pacific Northwest at that time was super inspirational. There was a lot of indie DIY self-releasing stuff. Merge, I think, was doing their thing at that point. And it's just, it was like, a fun thing to do so we're like if we're gonna make copies of a tape we should put a you should be on a record label right it's legit were you living in eugene at the time (laughs) i was living in eugene at the time so when did you move to portland i moved to portland in 1998 okay so you did the label from eugene i did the for seven years yep and what else did you do i'm assuming you did something else with your time besides just the label yeah i worked in a grocery store (laughs) i also went to school i went to the U of O and actually spent a year back east at UMass uh-huh. in like 93, 94. And there was, again, a ton of like cool independent music going on out there. People starting little labels and whatnot. And that was super inspirational and fun. And honestly, the first time I'd been away from home, because I grew up in Eugene also. And so that like nine to 11 month period was like, way bigger than that (laughs) yeah if that makes sense and so came back to eugene from there hung out eugene for a little bit worked in the grocery store some more and then needed to go somewhere else and portland was the place to go because it was a big city when you wanted it to be and not a big city when you didn't want it to be (laughs) right definitely yeah so how many records were you putting out between 91 and 98? Between then, I was. it was mostly cassettes. Lots of just dubbing stuff off in the garage. Again, I had a home studio in my garage, 8-track reel-to-reel machine, and would just basically get anybody that I knew to come in and record stuff. Had the crabs in, and we did a single for the crabs on K, which was really cool. Worked a lot with a bunch of local bands and started doing... Seven inches and did a 12 inch compilation called Nailed to the Stars that had this super awesome band called Pants on it. <laughs> One of my favorite pants out of Eugene, Pants with Silent K. 
and Diane from Oswald Five O and John and Lisa from the Crabs had a band called Twenty Two Sparkling Smiles, and they were on there. My friend Ben, who did a band called Kind of Like Spitting for a really long time, that was the first thing he put out. And I got a lot of help from Mike Hogan, who ran Little Brother Records, who put out a ton of awesome stuff. We would spend like hours on the phone with him talking to me about like how to talk to pressing plants and which ones to use and how to master records and like how to get in touch with this zine or that zine. And at the same time, I think the Simple Machines put out that guide, mm-hmm. the Canics Guide to Putting Out Records. And yeah. I ordered that and read that cover to cover so many times. Yeah. 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 So you've been doing this a long time. How have things changed? I mean, they've changed a ton, obviously. But for yeah. you, how have things changed in 27 years? Well, I started off with cassettes and then those died and now they're back again. <laughs> And then I did vinyl, and then that died, but I didn't ever stop doing it because I liked it. And then CDs came about, and I remember CDs being a big deal, and we spent a lot of time burning CDs in 98 to probably 2001. We burned so many CDs. (laughs) Of releases, and then just kind of re-landed on vinyl because there were a bunch of cool bands and nobody wanted to put out their vinyl because vinyl is really expensive and didn't sell very well. And I just like the format a lot. It's beautiful. The packaging is amazing. And I've always been a big proponent of awesome packaging. Yeah. So that's kind of how things are changing now. Vinyl's making a resurgence. Again, I've been told that for like the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. My dad will be like, hey, I read something about vinyl coming back. And friends will be like, you do vinyl, right? That's coming back. I'm like, it never really went away. And also, it's not like I'm selling a ton more. The profit margin is still Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the business has changed a lot. And how you market and sell records has changed a lot. How you make records hasn't changed much at all. I mean, besides, you know, digital recording's gotten, you know, palatable and whatnot. But the the actual, like, it's it's all the stuff that kind of circles around the making the record that's changed drastically. Right, right. Distribution models, digital retail, online stores. I mean, when I first started the label and even when I first moved to Portland, like, it was all mail order. Like, mm-hmm. literally mail order. For those of you who don't understand that, that's where people send you a letter with a check and tell you the records they want, and then you mail them back to them, as opposed to sending you an email or placing an order online. So how has Jealous Butcher changed for you? Has it ever been a full-time job? No, it's never been a full-time job. It's always been something of a passion project. Not a hobby, because I think that belittles the you know, all the work that goes into it, because there's a lot of work that goes into it from myself and obviously from all of the artists that I work with. But there was a period of time in the early 2000s where I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, this is going to be for real. Because for some reason before it wasn't for real. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get budgets for records, $3,000, $5,000 a record. We're going to hire publicists. We're going to do the PR campaign. We're going to do all this. And the more I started to do that, and the more I started to dig into that, the more I started to hate what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I just got to stop. I've got to quit running a record label. This isn't going to work. Like, I got to focus on something else. And then I'd be like, oh, but. I kind of want to put out this record by these guys or oh, we should maybe just do a seven inch with that band. Or, <laughs> I'm like, Oh, I don't need to stop doing this. I just need to stop doing it the way that I'm supposed to be doing it. Mm. Air quotes. And then I realized I was just gonna, you know, do it the way that was fun because it has to be fun. Cause if it's not fun in some way or another, like it's not never going to be fun all the time. They're not, every aspect is going to be fun, but it's, got to at least be fun in some way. Otherwise, there's no point in doing it. Well, this is, I mean, I find this fascinating because I do this full-time like as a job and as, and because of that, there is to some extent a profit motive, right? Like it definitely feels like even though profit is not our goal Mm -hmm. and if an album doesn't sell as well as we hope it will, then it's a bummer. Like nobody, you know, it's like, but it's not the end of the world. And there's some artists that we put out, even though we're pretty sure you know, we'll be lucky to break even. Totally. 
But at the end of the day, this is a business and this is, you know, supports five or six people. Yep. So we do all, you know, we have to do stuff that will keep the lights on and the phones connected or whatever. Totally. So, and I, I kind of, it's really interesting because your way is kind of great in that you don't have to necessarily <laughs> have that exact, you can put stuff out that's really more purely driven by love. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about how it sells necessarily. Or do, you, or do you still worry about it? Well, I still worry about it. I mean, I put a lot of thought into each release and how each release is going to be successful, but there's no one way that a release is successful, right? So like I came up with this Series 33 project where like I would make 33 copies of a record because it's cool to have a physical artifact of something that people put time and love and energy into. And you can generally find that many people that are willing to pay money to also have a physical object right or you do a hundred copies of something because it's just a local band and they're going to just play local shows they're not going to go on tour and that way you're not sitting on a bunch of records but they have something to sell and they have a fan base and everybody feels great about it Mm -hmm. or it's a you know a national act that has a following and then you're going to press a thousand copies of the record or two thousand copies of the record and you're going to put it run it through the distribution channel and you're going to hire a publicist for it So I try to approach each release on a kind of case-by-case basis and make sure that the artist and I are on the same page as to how much effort's going to be put into it and on each of our sides, right? Because it's never like, the record label's not the solution, right? (laughs) The record label doesn't make the band. There might have been a period of time where that could have happened, but that quickly went away as I saw it, particularly in the indie realm. And... So we just try to figure out yeah, on a case-by-case basis how, how we're going to approach a record and what's going to make everybody feel good about how it came out. Yeah. And how do you feel like in general you have done with that model? Has it been successful for you? It has. It has. There are a few missteps, you know, there are a few times where you think something's going to be a little bit bigger than it ends up being, but there haven't been a whole lot of those things. And so that's felt really good. And as far as I know, most of my artists are super stoked with <laughs> the work that I do. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a way, your your model is extremely philanthropic, right? Because you're basically putting your time, your money, your energy, and your love into something that's really just for the benefit of the artist. Yeah. For, well, for sure. Totally. I mean, it's it's fun to make stuff and it fulfills my need to make things. Like, I like to build things too. And, but, I mean, it's like you put out a record and you get that box in the mail. You've got that record in your hand and you're like, yes, there's a thing. (laughs) I mean, quite often, honestly, the reason I put out records is because I want a copy. Right, right. I just happen to sometimes pay a little bit more for that copy than, you (laughs) know, normal humans would. (laughs) Six months of work and money. Yeah, totally. That's a lot more of the normal, normal folks pay. Yep, yep.
That was Choke by Tim Rutilli and Craig Ross. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Rob Jones of Jealous Butcher. So now we are in the digital age, the world of digital. Yeah. What does that mean to someone who mostly makes physical artifacts? It means that people can go to my website and buy the records, right? Because that's digital, because the internet's digital. Sure, that works. I don't honestly know what it means, because it's one of those things that is changing so very, very rapidly. And there was a brief window where digital sales could help recoup physical sales. And that was really cool where you could like spend a little bit extra on packaging, go for the tip on gatefold instead of the tube gatefold, you know, go for a spot varnish or something Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you knew that there was going to be enough digital sales to help bolster the physical costs. But at this point with digital downloads going not away away, but definitely like steeply declining that income has also gone away because streaming doesn't really make up for it. Right. And how you market streaming is really weird. Totally weird. something that I don't understand. Yeah. But would sort of love to, but also would just love to have somebody else on staff that knew how to do that <laughs> and was into digging into the algorithms and all of that stuff because... There's only so much my noggin can handle, and that yeah. some t- most of the time isn't something I'm into figuring out. Yeah. To the same extent, I'm determined to figure it out in one way or another because it's important to my artists to be able to make a living. I mean, as much as this is fun for me and it's cool to put out records, like I'm working with people who often do this for a living and need the income from selling records to survive. And so I want to do everything I can to be the best partner I can be to those people. Right. I'm just going to go back a little bit because I feel like, you know, your label and my label both started the same year. And yeah. and it seems like we both had the same motivation, both labels, in that we we're sort of documenting a scene. Yeah. And I wonder if that's still the case. Like, I feel like the 90s was a big time for people to feel like they had a scene to document. Yeah. And I don't know if that has really changed. I thought for a minute there a few years ago that we were sort of back to scenes, but I don't know. I feel like the internet has kind of created this not level playing field, but sort of like vast wasteland. Yeah, I love that. That's perfect. (laughs) Because not a level playing field for sure. No. But it's more just like this endless weird plane of like stuff. And (laughs) it's hard to feel a regional (laughs) distinction. Yeah. And it's also hard to notice, you know, people really documenting scenes per se. You know, when new labels crop up, which they do all the time, you know, I may be missing the, the really small ones that are documenting small scenes, but I feel like it's more like people are documenting a genre or a sound, and then the bands can be from all over the place. That's what it seems like to me. Yeah. No, I definitely see what you're saying. For sure, growing up and starting the label, it was about documenting the scene, right? And all the labels I mentioned at the outset were all documenting their scenes. And their scenes were, I don't want to say bigger, but I don't know. There's just something weird about space right now. And the internet is definitely, I think, the cause of it, where you can't really encapsulate things because everything is available to everyone at any time. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to package up Olympia or package up Eugene or package up Seattle and deliver it to people because they can just go to it anytime they want to and pick and choose what they want to pick. Right. I also think that, I mean, I hope that because I'm older, I just don't get it. (laughs) You know what I mean? When when we all started this, we were in our like, you know, mid-teens to mid-twenties. Right. And life was different for us. You know, our scenes were smaller and more important. And I liked to hope that those things still exist and I'm just not part of them. Right. You yeah. Know? That's I mean, a not good that I question. don't want to be part of them, but you know, I'm not 15. I'm not 20. Right. <laughs> right. And that's a good question. And you know, this is like, I, I don't ever like going down this path cause I always feel like I end up being old man shakes fist at clouds, you know, like <laughs> when I was a kid, 
it wasn't like this. But it is, you know, it is a question mark about, you know, because we know, I mean, we know just from being in the music business that, you know, venues all over the country are closing and, you know, it's harder and harder to keep a venue alive in a community. And, you know, communities that once had a thriving live scene now just have a few places where you can see live music. I mean, Portland is, is you know, constantly, there's venues closing here yeah. all the time. And that's, you know, that's a big issue for our, our own scene. Totally. So, you know, I just wonder. And also with, you know, helicopter parenting and not letting kids out to see oh, shows. Oh, God, and, I know, right? And, uh, and you know, because, I mean, I grew up in New York City and, you know, <laughs> just the the story of my Wednesday afternoon would, like, turn the hair white on the people that I know who are parents today. Totally. You know, because they're just like, you mean you were on the streets and your parents didn't know you where you were and you didn't have a cell phone? <laughs> It's like, yeah, that's right. Like, my mom yeah, just let awesome. me out in the morning in Manhattan, and uh, she maybe saw me when I came home at night. Like, that's how that was. And guess what? I'm alive. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. Didn't die. Everything was fine. Yep, yep. So, yeah, that was just normal. Yeah, for sure. For and I sure. feel like that is not, you know, not how it is now. It's totally not the case anymore. But there's still, like, I mean, every once in a while, something will percolate up where it's like, oh, yeah, this band is playing at this house. And it's like, I've never heard of this house and I've never heard of this band. But my friend who told me about this, there are house shows that happen there all the time. Yeah. Right? And I know that there are tons of venues, venues, quote unquote, in Portland that are like the monkey house was in Eugene, where it's like somebody's basement. And, you know, it's a bunch of college kids or maybe like the barista who works down the street. Like they have a basement and they have a PA and bands come through and play there. And there are bands I've never heard of. And it's at a place I've never been to because I'm just not there now. Right. Do you feel like bands now are more commercially minded than they were 20 years ago or 27 years ago? Well, I mean, I don't know that they're necessarily commercially minded, but they're, I think that they're more open to commercial possibilities. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when we were, when we started doing this, like the idea of selling out was huge. Right. Like nobody wanted to sell out. Nobody wanted to sign to a major. Most certainly they were not putting songs in commercials right. or anything like that. And now that's, you know, a way that bands make a living. Yeah. And nobody frowns on that. I mean, we're paying attention to business practices of the people whose, you know, products we're supporting, but nobody's not supporting a product or turning it down purely for ethical reasons because we realize, or at least not nobody, but, you know, the majority of the people that we know that do this stuff, like that is an acceptable revenue stream. Right. Which is fine because it's like pretty much all of the other traditional revenue streams have dried up. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of them are. Or at least are a lot harder to mine gold out of. Yeah, absolutely. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I just, I, I, then I got really depressed about digital services all of a sudden. So, (laughs) you and me both, man. It's (laughs) terrible. Like, this interview is about to go down to the bleak place. Let's try not to, I'll try not to do that. Yeah. So let's, keeping it light. Yeah. What are you excited about? What are you working on? I know you've got some new stuff coming out next year. Yeah. I mean, I worked on some really cool records this year, just to kind of go back a little bit and then go forward. I worked on a record by uh, my friend Karina Rep, who's a longtime Portland resident and recently moved to LA. She made a record with Danny Syme called How a Fantasy Will Kill Us All. And it's fantastic. She's such a talented lady. My friends Tim Rutilli and Craig Ross made a record called 10 Seconds to Collapse, which is really weird and dystopian and beautiful and broken and lovely. Friends from Astoria, Luke and Katie, who are also in Blind Pilot, they have a band called The Hackles, and we kind of pulled a Wayback Machine and took my 8-track out to a house in Astoria and recorded four or five days with a bunch of different friends coming over and sitting in on it. And with Justin, he was mm-hmm. there for some of that. Justin from... Uh, Horse Feathers. Horse Feathers, thanks. There's another band called Horse Necks, and like that popped into my head. Horse Necks? Yeah. I did not know that band. Yeah. So just a lot of fun making records with cool people happened this year and then moving forward put out a record by old unconscious this fall just two weeks ago we had the record release show and they're kind of an instrumental band from portland also good friends and coming up in 2019 we've got this fellow named Eamon fogarty and he has a record called blues values that's coming out which I'm very excited about. My friend Michael Krasner from Phoenix, who does a band called Boxhead Ensemble, turned me on to him, and he's a rad dude living in Santa Cruz now. 
and also going to be reissuing a series of records by one of the best bands that ever existed, Team Dresh. Woo! Yeah, we know them. That's going to be super exciting. Also in the shoot, new record by Eyelids, Portland Supergroup. They're doing a... One of Portland's supergroups. Yeah, one, a true, <laughs> true, true. We got a few of those. <laughs> we do got a few of those. But they're working on a new project that's super exciting. And I don't know, just going to kind of see what happens, man. I think what's cool about Jealous Butcher is that it doesn't... It's not a genre label. It's like a what you like label. Yeah. I think that's cool. Because you're not... You necessarily i mean you know people who are fans of your label which is a thing that used to happen and i guess maybe still happens but but it feels like it was a bigger thing back in the day yeah for sure you know people who are jealous butcher fans are like actually getting like rob jones taste yeah they're not just getting (laughs) you know what i mean it's it's like a lot of other labels you know i mean i think about my friend lewis posen's label hopeless it's like you say hopeless you know what you're gonna get it's going to be pop punk. It's yeah. going to be epic. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, a lot of labels are like that. You know, they sort of are are specifically genre labels, which yeah. I think is genius. I love the idea of being a genre label. I also do not run a genre label. I have many things going on at yeah, Rock Stars. Totally. But I think that that's cool that people can sort of get a little piece of, of what you like. Awesome. Thank you, know? you. Because you're certainly not putting out everything that's in Portland. No. I mean, there's a lot of music in Portland. Yeah, and I'm honestly trying to, like, spend a decent amount of time looking outside of Portland mm-hmm. and just kind of keeping my eyes and ears open to things from elsewhere mm-hmm. to kind of help spread the word about all of the other stuff that we do. Totally, yeah. Sometimes it's easier to work with local bands, though, because they're literally oh, yeah. right here. Totally, 100%. I mean, yeah. I, I definitely work with a decent chunk of local bands. But it's also hard because it's like when you want to grow something or do something, Portland is a hard town to get out of, mm. I find, yeah, for bands. And, I mean, just geographically speaking, it's like you can play in Seattle. Right, that's <laughs> it. Good luck. Maybe you could play in Eugene. Maybe, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Sometimes shows in Olympia, but right. if the next biggest town is San Francisco and that's not a quick drive. That's 15 hours. Yeah. yeah. Whereas like if you're working with a band on the East Coast, they could actually do a tour in like... A weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And play major markets. and Yeah. It's just interesting to think about all of that kind of stuff when you're looking to work with an artist or work with work with a band. Well, it's also, I think Portland's a hard town like many towns in that, you know, there's... Some artists are really content with getting like best band in Portland Mercury. Yeah. And then that's it. Like yep. they're happy. Like that was their pinnacle. Totally. That's all they wanted. Yeah. You know, was was that. And and sometimes they don't know that that's all they wanted until they get that. Yeah. And so sometimes we didn't know that that was all they wanted. <laughs> totally. And so, I mean, I think that goes to like, having like real upfront conversations with artists when you start working with them and being open to working like if you're able to being open to working at different levels so it's like cool you just want to be a portland band and play a few shows great this is the package we have available for the portland band that just wants to play a few shows right (laughs) this is for the portland band that wants to like go out on the road a little bit but still has you know a family and a full-time job right this is the package for the band that wants to make a go of it and like hit the ground running and see what they can do totally i don't know that maybe that sounded silly i don't know no it doesn't sound silly it's just the question is does your label actually offer all those packages because mine does not yeah. Well, I mean, it's goofy to call them packages, but I definitely... I liked it. I thought it was whimsical. <laughs> I feel like we should have a website with a menu. <laughs> the stay-at-home package. Oh, totally. The get-on-the-road package. Yeah, totally. I love it. I love it. <laughs> How many Facebook followers do you have? Yeah. <laughs> What's your Instagram? <laughs> ah! Yeah. Oh, my God. Run screaming from the room, pulling yep. hair out of head. We don't do that either. Yeah. It was my sleep when I felt the 
That was Need You, Don't Need You by Karina Rep. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to The Future of What?, After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Rob Jones of Jealous Butcher. I mean, that gets back to our conversation about scenes, because, you know, in 1993, when I graduated from college, my college band moved to Minneapolis, because that was the biggest market near my school where people were making it. Mm Mm-hmm. So in 93, what that meant was major labels had noticed scenes, largely yeah. because of Olympia. I mean, Olympia claims Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Seattle gets the credit. Yeah, <laughs> totally. 
the Seattle scene had created this sort of feeding frenzy of major labels who were suddenly yeah. showing up in all these sort of mid-sized or smaller-sized towns. Yeah. You know, Chapel Hill and, you know, and being like, well, who are the next bands, that we, the next big Nirvana-like bands? Oh, God. So my band, the Shepherd Kings, moved <laughs> to Minneapolis to make it in the music business, which obviously did not happen. And you look like you've made it in the music business. Yeah, but not with that band, and <laughs> not in 1993. <laughs> I think I'd have more money right yeah. now if, <laughs> if that or not, <laughs> or not exactly, or I'd be a, a drug addict. Exactly. I don't know. Yeah, that was an interesting scene, actually, the Minneapolis scene. But yeah. my point was, now major labels aren't going out to all these individual towns. Rather, they're sitting home and hiring people to analyze data. Yeah. From exactly that, YouTube followers and Instagram followers. That's and, way more rock and roll. Well, sitting at home and analyzing. Absolutely. Data. Yeah. That's sexy. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the good, Who doesn't that's love like, a good data analyst? <laughs> yeah. That's the good life right there. But, you know, that's like a very mm. different. I mean, to me, that's really different. Maybe they've got people scouting other yeah. towns, but I don't, I don't think so. No. Uh, every, every story I've heard of somebody being contacted by a major label within the last several years has been based on some sort of social media or. SoundCloud or mm. something like that, some yeah. sort of presence right. that right. they've Which stumbled is, across. You know, because those of us who do this, you know, all the time, just because you've got a big number of followers does not actually translate into sales. Like that's, I, I would say that's the crux of the weirdness that yeah. we're in right now. Is you can have a gazillion streams on Spotify. Yep, that doesn't translate into one sale. Physical, physical. Sale. Yeah, totally, one hundred percent. So it's yeah, very difficult. Because there are so many ways to consume music now, there's no way to focus on one way. You have to like scattershot and hope that something hits. Totally. And then hope you can pull from that pile of hits, move some people over to a different pile. Like, oh, you like to stream this. Maybe you'd like to buy the super limited edition blah, blah, blah package. Like that kind of thing. Right. And there's, but there's not even a correlation these days, at least certainly not with, there hasn't been any good research on this. There doesn't seem to be a correlation between number of streams and number of butts in the seats. Yeah, true. You know, like again, and there doesn't, there isn't a correlation between number of butts in the seats at the shows to merch sales. Yeah. Like some of the best merch nights on one of the artists I work with tour are nights where like, Technically, they weren't. A, it wasn't a well-sold show, right? But they sold way more merch than at the show that sold out, right? Or something to that effect. Yeah, you know, like that kind of stuff. It's like, it's just like it's hard to connect the dots at this point. Exactly, because everything is anything is possible, and yeah. so nothing happens. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, lots of things happen, but they're not happening in a yeah. predictable manner. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an interesting time. So, what do you, how do you feel when you meet people or you hear that young people are starting record labels today? I'm all for it. Start a record label. I mean, when I started a record label, I didn't know anything about distribution. I didn't know anything about really working with bands. I didn't know anything about how to sell product. Like, it was just a cool project. And I think that we need fans as much as we need bands, right? And probably more. Like, we need people that are excited about music, excited to help make things happen for other people, because I think that's how things keep growing and evolving. And I mean, as much as we poo-poo or are troubled by the direction of the music business and the, you know, all the different ways you can buy stuff and all the different ways to like listen to and digest music, the music industry is not that old and it's just growing and changing and we kind of have to figure out how to adapt to it. That's true. That's you a good know? point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying I like it, <laughs> but I'm saying that it's, you know, it's part of the growth and evolution of a system is to, you know, constantly change and, you know, hopefully having old people learn from young people and young people learn from old people, you know, experience learn from inexperience, the whole, the whole nine yards. You need the, the fresh crop of people with the new ideas and the new approaches and that are willing to take the time to understand how things work and not rely on how things used to work mm -hmm. so I, I think it's rad when cool. people get together and decide to start record labels it's been really fun i've been part of this and you were part of this new group called the portland label coalition and we started getting together about 
two years ago, I think. And there are a bunch of awesome local labels that show up and there are more labels that show up every time. There'll be new people that show up and new ways of putting out records that I hear about. Like we met with some folks last week who were just talking about how they never put anything out physically. Right. Their whole level of success is releasing singles Mm -hmm. and digital only and doing appearances on tracks and things. And it's like, I don't know anything about that. That's really cool. And they're like, I don't know anything about making a record. That's really cool. (laughs) And so, I mean, those kind of relationships where you've got two people that know different aspects of a business and are super excited to talk to each other about it and learn from each other about it. I think that's where we find our successes and where I find my happy place, hopefully. (laughs) Well, thank God we ended on an upbeat note. Yeah. (laughs) Rob Jones of Jealous Fitcher, thanks for being with me today on The Future of What. Thanks so much, Portia. I really appreciate you asking me. That was Maybe More by Eyelids. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. Jealous Butcher is offering our listeners a special deal, 25% off everything in their catalog with promo code FOW18. Go to JealousButcher.com today. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Tim Rutilli. Tim, welcome to The Future of What. Thank you. So I am talking to you today because you have an album out on the label Jealous Butcher Records, and we are doing a spotlight on Jealous Butcher on The Future of What. So I wanted to talk to you about your experience working with them. Okay. It's a good experience. It was a good experience. Yay. Yeah. How did you meet Rob Jones? Probably through friends, probably through our mutual friend, Rachel Blumberg. Oh, yeah. And it was probably some years ago 
when California was playing in Portland. Gotcha. Makes sense. I know Rachel as well. She knows everybody, she, that girl. Yeah, she does. <laughs> so how did you guys decide to work on this record together? Did Rob approach you? I think we were talking about reissuing the first California records. Sometimes good weather follows bad people. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing that we did with Rob. And we did a Loftus reissue maybe right after that. Okay. And that was maybe 2011. Mm -hmm. And then you have this record where you collaborate with Craig Ross. Mm -hmm. Is that out already or is that coming up? No, that came out in June. So it's out now. Great. And how did you guys decide to, to do that record together? Well, I was in Austin quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I started going to Craig's house. We worked on some of the last California record stitches. We did two songs with Craig there. Mm -hmm. And it was really fun recording with him. And then he and I started just writing songs and recording some stuff over the next couple of years. So we made guitars tuned to air conditioners, which is also on Jealous Butcher-ish, mm -hmm. kind of, or Hired Hand. And then we started putting these songs together, and that became 10 Seconds to Collapse. And that came out recently. Awesome. So, I mean, you've been in several bands. You've worked with a, a lot of labels. What's been your experience working with Jealous Butcher? I mean, I think the special thing about Jealous Butcher is that it's very much a labor of love. And I feel like Rob works with bands that he really loves. And I, to my knowledge, he gives them everything he's got. So I'm just, I'm just interested from a band's perspective what it's like to work with him. It's exactly what you said. I mean, we love, I mean, I love Rob very much. And he puts a lot of care into me. Like he really, he really cares more than most people about the whole entire package of what the record is and, and treating the record as, as an object, not just a file, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and that's really important <laughs> and it feels really good for me. For me. Yeah. You just said not just a file, which is like so depressing. That's <laughs> Yeah, but that's how a lot of people view music. Is, and, and now it's yeah. not even a file. It's, it's like a, a thing that streams because an algorithm told them that you liked something else, you know? Right. So Rob is the opposite of that. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. This release is not very classifiable. Which really... 10 seconds to collapse. It's not classifiable? Well, I mean, would you say that it's like super, does it super fit into a certain genre or is it sort of very unique? Because I kind of got the impression it was pretty unique. I consider it a ska record. It's pretty much, <laughs> it's ska punk. <laughs> if you got to be specific, I don't know. It's a pop music. It's, it's a rock record, I think. Interesting. It's songs. They're singing. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's cool. That's just funny. I, I grew up in... Manhattan. And what's little known is that the scene in the early 90s in, in New York was absolutely a ska scene, which went absolutely nowhere. But it was it was the scene. There was a lot of ska going on. It was a lot of ska. Like dudes in hats. Oh, yes. Multiple, many, many dudes in hats. Yeah. yeah. Nice suits. Yep. Tight suits, hats. <laughs> exactly. All of the above. I don't mind ska. I kind of like ska. Yeah. Well. But I don't like hats. Yeah, or tight suits. Forget about it. Not really. Not tight suits. <laughs> awesome. Well, Tim Rutili, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us today on The Future of What. Awesome. Thank you. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Tim Rutili and Craig Ross, Karina Rep, Eyelids, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Can I have a taste of your